Hello, everyone. I'm Tana Houghton. Welcome to February's live podcast with Dr. John Diard. And today, the title is Change Your Life with Nature's Harvest. And Dr. John will be talking about all the ways that you can actually literally change your life by eating with the seasons. And it's not just eating what's in season, but there's also a lot of important information about how to eat what is in season. And I'll also be talking about some new research that proves this age-old knowledge that we've had for millenniums and that we just naturally lived off the land. And Dr. John will lecture for about 45 minutes, and then the last 15 minutes will be devoted to your Q&A. So here are a few notes on how to interact with the call. If you want to type in questions while watching online, you want to make sure that you're on our website, not on YouTube. We're not able to monitor the YouTube comments live during the call. So go to lifespa.com, and the first article on the homepage below the banner is called Episode 17, Change Your Life with Nature's Harvest. And this is the viewing page for this call. So just go ahead and go over there, and you'll see a box on that call where you can submit your questions. And only Dr. John and the staff will see your name and email. So you don't have to worry about that. And if you want to ask questions verbally, you want to do that by listening on your phone. So call this number. It's 425-440-5100. That's 425-440-5100. And the PIN number is 124-337-POUND. That's 124-337-POUND. So if Dr. John calls on you, he will call on you by the last name and the city or state that your phone is registered under. So it may not be your name or where you're currently located, so just make a note of how your phone is registered. And there's no difference or preference for Dr. John if you type your question and submit it online or if you do it verbally. And if you registered for this live event, we'll send you an email tomorrow that includes a recap of this podcast with links to any of the articles Dr. John will talk about and how you can listen to the recording. So the next podcast is March 9th, and it's Nature's New Year, Spring's Prescription for Perfect Health. So you can sign up for any of these podcasts by going to lifespa.com, and under the Learn tab, you'll see uh, a link called Podcasts, and then you'll look under the Events column, and that's how you'll be able to register. So we hope you enjoy the podcast, and here is... Dr. John Deere. Can we switch the screen? Hi, everyone. Welcome to our podcast on why we should eat with the seasons. As you probably all know um, by now, I'm pretty excited about some of the research that is tying uh, the microbiology of each plant in each season with our digestive system, 
uh, and how that's supposed to change with each season and how Ayurveda, in some amazing way, thousands of years ago, had systems in place, uh, you know, uh, health uh, structures and lifestyle plans and stress reduction plans, all really designed to help our microbiome thrive. So tonight, I thought I would um, introduce to you some of the research on the microbiome, how all that works, but also talk about just some of the, the mechanics of foods in different seasons and what they do for us and how all that works and sort of put it all together in, in one package for us. I thought that would be pretty interesting and, and really, really important for us to begin to realize that the nutritional cycle in nature is an annual one. It takes a year to complete. There's no way you can get the, the RDA, the recommended dietary allowance, every day of your life when, when nature's harvesting more proteins and fats in the winter and leafy greens in the spring and higher carbohydrate foods in the summer. This is an annual nutritional cycle. It takes one year to complete. And it, it's so important for us to begin to understand that because in that cycle comes the microbes that also help us digest, uh, help us support mood, help us protect us against seasonal influence as we'll see. So, so very, very important to the point where um, we actually, I'm so excited about this concept and this new research tying ancient wisdom with modern science that we're actually doing our three-season diet challenge, which hopefully a lot of you know about already, but it's where you get a, once a month we're putting out a free packet of information where you get uh, seasonal recipes based on our grocery list from my three-season diet book that were written by Emma Frisch from the Food Network, which is like super awesome. People are loving these recipes, these seasonal recipes. All the articles that I've written, videos, and all the research that I can compile each month to kind of tie this ancient wisdom of eating with the seasons to the modern science with understanding our microbiome. And this is a free thing. Everybody gets it. Whenever you just sign up, make it. We don't want to give you another email on top of what you already get from us. So we just ask you to, to make sure you want this, and we send you a special email with all this really cool, totally free, no catch information. And my, my only point of this is one, I'm super excited about it. Number two, I think that. Um, I'd love to see what would happen to us if we all ate with the seasons for an entire year. Would you be able to start digesting wheat and dairy again? Would you be able to have better ability to handle fats again? Would you weight balance naturally? Would you gain the weight that you can't gain, lose the weight that you can't get rid of? Would you do these things quite naturally as opposed to trying to do it or the diet and all these crazy, crazy, highly extreme pendulum shifting diets that just seem to not go away? and how nature has been feeding us for, for <clears throat> 2 million years as primates and 70,000 plus years as, as humans, it's, it's been a long time. And I think that we can begin to tie some ancient wisdom together. So that's why we put this plan out for you guys. It's totally free. We do put out a questionnaire to see how you're doing today, and in a year we'll do another questionnaire to see how you're doing. And, you know, also remember, nobody's keeping score. Nobody's going to, like, make sure you're eating every meal with every season. The point is, if you had a list of foods and a little motivation to say, hey, these are in season, and here's some of the benefits Eat more of them if you can this month. Give it a go. If you screw up, we'll do it next month. We'll send you another packet with the next month. And if you screw up that, do it the next month. I also be able to do this for the rest of my life for free for everybody. So everybody can just keep getting motivated to stay on this path 
of eating with the seasons. So please, no pressure. Nobody's going to quiz you or test you at the end. But we do have, we do, there is an optional questionnaire in the beginning at the end to see if things got better. We're just trying to sort of do a very informal evaluation and investigation of, of what this might be like. So anyway, that's the point. Um, the thing that really motivated me was, and I might have told this story before, but it's, I love telling it, and it's a really good one. Um, when, and I was reading a book called uh, The Forest Unseen by, by a botanist who was, who was measuring a square meter of Earth and watched it every day for an entire year to see what would happen. And one of the little reports he made was, I guess a deer came on his little meter and ate something, and he said, aha, well, here's what happens with deer. When they eat, certain, when they eat bark in the wintertime, which they do, they uh, have microbes to be able to digest the bark in the winter. And when they eat leaves in the summer, they have microbes to digest the leaves in the summer better, right? And if they were to eat the bark in the summer out of season, they wouldn't have the microbes to digest such a heavy kind of substance. So they would create, it could cause such a level of indigestion, it could literally kill the deer. So <clears throat> when I heard that, I was like, you're kidding, right? So deers die potentially when they eat out of season, and we make it a habit to completely ignore anything related to the cycles. Most folks eat the same food every day of the year, every day of the year, every day of the year. And these are crazy concepts, really. I mean, they've really never been done in the history of the world before, and they're brand new. We have no genetics to support that tendency to eat the same food every single day, not to mention the fact that those foods are super processed. They have basically no microbes. When you, when you basically spray pesticides on all these foods, you kill all the microbes. What happens is in the soil, all the bugs that make up 90% of the cells in your body come from dirt. <clears throat> so basically, we are sort of dirty, um, loaded with, with soil-based microbes. And when those plants start to kind of come out of the ground in the spring, their chemistry attracts certain microbes. Different plants have different chemistries to attract different microbes. Certain soils have different chemistries that allow certain plants to thrive in those soils, and they attract different microbes. So, lot of now we have this incredible diversity of microbes that are sometimes multiplying like a million times every day. Not all of them, but a lot of them uh, do it that fast. So that's like crazy amounts of multiplication to create a genetic adaptation to the extremes of the seasons to the environment that it's living in. Imagine if humans multiplied that fast, how quickly we would evolve. And since when we, when we eat those plants that have those microbes from the dirt on those plants, and then we eat those plants, those little microbes become us. In fact, they become 90% of us. So 90% of the cells in the body are bug, nine microbes. We know that for a fact. And all those bugs came from the dirt. So how interesting is that? And how the dirt is constantly changing from place to place, from season to season, and the microbes and the plants that are harvested are changing as well. So we have microbes that are coming in the winter that help support us in a way that keep us warmer, that help us boost immunity in the winter when we desperately need it. In the springtime, we have microbes that are uh, supporting the growth perhaps, and, and some of this has not been researched, to growth of other microbes to help decongest. These are sort of Ayurvedic principles that we know to be true from Ayurveda, and every day we're beginning to watch more and more science prove how the microbes are dramatically changing from season to season, and, and I'm excited about it because Ayurveda seems to have written sort of a blueprint of what's really important with regard to seasonal eating and why, and we're beginning to 
only now begin to understand and catch up to what this ancient wisdom knew. Not to say that everything about ancient wisdom is gospel, that everything about Ayurveda is absolutely fact. I don't believe that. Our job here at Lifespa is to prove ancient wisdom with modern science and to actually really find out exactly, you know, separate the wheat from the chaff and give you guys the information that really does work that has science behind it. And if it doesn't really have science behind it, I'll just, you know, reserve judgment or reserve writing about it because I don't think that, that uh, we know enough about it yet. And maybe down the road we'll know more and be able to write about it. But so, so when the seasons are changing, these microbes uh, that we ingest are changing. And that is a powerful thing. For example, wheat, right, is such a big, big topic in that gluten um, has been deemed uh, this terrible, terrible food and a toxin, uh, super bad for your brain, um, and all these terrible things. Well, let's think about wheat, for example. It's harvested originally in the mountains of Turkey in the fall, and in the mountains of Turkey in the winter it gets cold. So wheat has always been a cold climate grain harvested in the fall as a lipophilic grain, which means it's lipophilic, which means it makes you get fat. Wheat was designed to put a little meat on your bones, add a little weight or a little insulation, a little fat to help you insulate a cold winter. In the same way we know that fruit harvested at the end of the fall is also lipophilic and those fruits actually provide more fructose which doesn't impact our blood sugar as much but it is a very slow digestive process in the liver to make triglycerides and help build a level of insulation in the body for the winter fat. These are very, very simple logical rules. I don't understand why it's not more understood how logical this is. So the point being it was it never really meant for us to eat wheat every single day, three times a day for the next for 30, 40, 50 years of our life, right? We have most of the time, most of us have overshot that runway and the ability for us to digest harder to digest foods like wheat, dairy being another one. Dairy is a hard to digest protein called casein. Uh, mother's milk has like four times the whey than cow's milk. Very, very little casein. So we're genetically wired for the whey, not the casein. And as a result, um, when we uh, are eating a lot of milk, sometimes we don't have the ability to digest it. We can overly become overly sensitized to dairy, and, and that can cause problems. Um, in nature, the cows are having their babies in the spring, so mama's milk is for the baby, not for us. Uh, in the summer, there's a little bit more rope there. In the winter, on the fall, you can get more. And traditional cultures would take what they needed in the fall, make cheese out of it to store and last for the winter, or and basically ferment those foods to make them winter storing, to store them for the winter so they would be preserved. And that's how many cultures survive cold winters by connecting up with nature, really, right? But 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 who does that anymore? We eat dairy every day of the year, we eat every day of the year, and we wonder why we're having problems digesting some of these foods. So we can overwhelm our digestive, and I think that it makes sense for a lot of folks to stop eating wheat and dairy for a while, let the body desensitize, begin to start thinking about eating it in the fall, uh, your wheat in the fall, when the grains are being harvested and gain a little bit of weight. Have you all noticed, uh, well, gosh, you know, here in Colorado, it's been 60, 
70, I shouldn't tell everybody they're all going to move here, uh, for the last week or two, it's been 70 degrees. Today it was 69. Next, this weekend is going to be 65. So it's for February. This is really crazy weather, um, and uh, but it's made us all feel like spring is here. The crocuses are blooming. The grass is green. It's really weird, um, and um, and it's made us all feel like spring. And with spring comes certain desires change. Now, two months ago, I think all of us in the winter it was cold and icy, and and we're just couldn't, we just wanted to go and get something warm and some soup and some stew and, and go home and eat a nice big dinner, yeah, right? And just pig out and just feel like you just wanted to eat something nourishing. Come spring, the rules sort of dramatically change and we're sort of, you know, beginning to experience a little bit of that where, you know, the, the cravings begin to disappear. You're going into a natural time of the year where you're burning fat. Fat is a slow-burning, long-lasting fuel. You don't feel like you have that hunger. Naturally, it's a weight-balancing, weight-loss time of the year. It's a detoxifying time of the year. It's a burned fat, get rid of the waste time of the year. Stabilize mood, get the body to make energy last for a long period of time. After a winter of eating a lot of heavy, heavy foods, we go to a summertime where we're eating these lighter foods that get us into fat burning. And your appetite, your cravings disappear. I've noticed... Just my wife and I, you know, that the amount of food we're craving and desiring the last couple of weeks is just like I'm barely hungry. Where a month ago I couldn't stop eating. And and these are the things that I think you'll begin to see when you begin to start eating with the seeds. You're going to get hungry at the right time, crave at the right time, you know, not be hungry at the right time, even be sleepy at the right time, desire food at the right time during the daytime cycles. So the idea here is to get us all to realize that there are these powerful cycles of nature that Ayurveda talked about thousands of years ago. The birds fly south, whales migrate, leaves turn red, fall off trees. Major stuff happens every every season, every cycle, every day. And we sort of have disconnected ourselves from that. And I think that, that while you know our Western understanding of health has allowed us to live a lot longer than we have, a lot of it is artificial longevity. But if we were to take what we do know about longevity and plug that into what we sort of understand now from the, the connection and the power of our connection to nature, sort of going back to our future for health and longevity, what will that bring? And that's sort of one of our missions here at LifeSpa is to bring people that information so you can really have health and vitality as you live a longer life, not sort of an aging process that, uh, you know, you sit around and watch TV all day long. I think we can do better and be vital throughout our entire life and, and live really long. And these are, I think, some of the ways to do it is to get reconnected back to nature. Um, so there's another story that I wrote about a while back, and it was about a nun. Her name was Sister Noella, and she was um, uh, um, a nun who made raw cheese, in, 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 and I think she still makes it, St. Nectaire cheese in Bethlehem, Connecticut. And way, way back when, when she made it, she uh, um, it was uh, illegal for her to make and sell raw cheese, so the FDA came in and shut her down, and she had her cows coming in, and she stirred the cheese in a big wooden pot with a, with a big wooden spoon and, and stirred it. And it was an old, old, you know, wooden uh, barrel that she stirred it all in, and it was not sterile at all. That, you know, it was just extremely sort of raw. 
and uh, they shut her down. And she went back to school, became a microbiologist, and she then came and decided to have a test between doing it, the cheese in a very sterile environment, the way the FDA prefers, everything sterile, 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 in stainless steel containers, and she made her St. Nectar cheese in that. And she continued to make her, her cheese in her barn in the convent, uh, in the abbey, you know, the old-fashioned way with her raw cows and her raw milk and her not sterile big wooden bucket um, and stirred it. And then she put E. coli, uh, you know, a toxic bacteria, into both of those batches. And the batch that had the sterile everything was completely infected and toxic and unable to be eaten um, uh, because of the E. coli just spread throughout the, the cheese. But in the, her raw cheese with loads of microbes that spent probably hundreds of years living in the crevices and cracks of the, of the wooden barrel that she used to stir it all in, um, and the grass-fed cows and the raw nature of the milk, everything has so many microbes that these good microbes rallied in this cheese-making process to take out the E. coli, and the, and, the, and the cheese was actually quite edible, even though it was inoculated with E. coli. How cool is that? And that's what happens inside of our intestinal tract. We have good bugs, bad bugs, and we have these sort of bugs that don't do anything. They're, they're sort, of, sort of commensural bugs that, that take up a lot of... Um, space, real estate in your intestinal microbiome, but they don't actually act in a major way in your benefit or in your detriment. And what I, when I spoke to a handful of microbiologists, they told me that the idea is very difficult to change the microbiome permanently because we have, um, we have uh, only a certain amount of real estate for them to live. So if you want to uh, make some room, you got to knock out some of the, the bad guys, and you got to do it for a while and keep reinforcing these messages so you can change the microbiome. If you were to get rid of some of the not-so-good guys and some of the real estate-occupying do-nothing microbes and then repopulate it with them with, it, with really good microbes, you can begin to change and ratchet up a microbiome that we now be, be believe this supports almost all the physical function of the body, not only just the brain, the mood. I just wrote an article that's coming out very soon about how they did a study and they found new gut-brain pathways that are based on microbial memories of old emotional patterns, food, taste, diet, that actually are the same pathways that allow us to make intuitive decisions and even that gut feeling that we're talking about, you know, modern science journals of uh, immune, immune, uh, I forget the name of the journal, I think it was, uh, I forget, but the name of the, these prestigious journals writing about intuition, it's just sort of words that you don't hear about, and we're beginning to see these being written, these words of intuition and, and gut feelings being understood from the, from the premise of understanding our microbiology in a different way. We also know that these microbes are extremely delicate and that when you spray a bunch of pesticides on foods, you kill all the bugs, basically. So, I mean, you, you have some, but the amount of microbes on, on conventional foods and the amount of microbes on organic foods is not even in the same league. Organic foods have so many more microbes than conventional foods do. So, I mean, it sounds weird, but you're eating a lot of little bugs and you eat a lot more, a lot more bugs than you are eating when you're eating uh, organic foods. It's a ton more of them versus conventional foods. Um, but those 
So that's another really good reason, right, for us to eat organic is because we're getting this diversity that's connected to the cycles, that's connected to the seasons. It's also important to eat foods that are in season the very best that you can. So you're getting this, you're inoculating your gut with the bugs that are supposed to be there to deliver a specific effect in the spring from me decongesting in the spring or helping the body dissipate water or help the body be a better fat burner in the spring. These are the things that are just beginning to be understood and how important it is for us to to recognize that that um, these these microbes that uh, are, are extremely sensitive to stress sensitive to stress being sprayed on by pesticides being sensitive to uh, stress like uh, anger there's some studies that I've reported on recently and some really cool articles coming up in my newsletter and blogs about some of the research about how the microbiome is really affected by stress. I even found some studies which I've been looking for a long time to show that, that the microbiome is supported when you love it and you're kind to it. And that is really interesting because in Ayurveda, it's not only that you don't want to live in a stressful world, but you want to take action to live in what we call a sophic world, a loving, caring, giving, kind world. And now we're beginning to see studies beginning to pop, you know, show up that are showing that that our microbiome is very sensitive and very life-supporting. So here is an interesting thing, and I've talked about this in lectures in, in when I give seminars, and, and, some, and I was always stumped by this question, and I remember one woman asked it, and been asked it a handful of times over the years, which was, um, everything that you're saying, when I talk about Ayurvedic psychology and being loving and giving and kind, is based on the premise that we're, by nature, loving and giving and kind. And I was like, you know, that is true. And that was the one leap of faith that I would ask my, my seminar, you know, course participants to, to agree with, was that our basic nature is loving, giving, and kind. But I have no science to back that up. I mean, I can talk about it all day long and give you all these examples as maybe why I think it's true, but I have no science to back it up. Well, I have some science now. And the science is that studies have shown that our microbiology thrives in a loving, giving, kind environment. And they disappear, and they, they don't thrive, and they contract, and they retreat, and they die off in a very stressful, aggravated environment. So if, right, we come from the dirt, which I think we all agree that we did, because it was the microbes that made this whole evolutionary thing happen, because they were multiplying so fast, and we are sort of a manifestation of, <laughs> of the dirt, uh, as human beings way down the road, and that these microbes we now know are extremely sensitive to stress, and how hunter-gatherers, maybe they got chased by a lion, I don't know, once a year, once a lifetime, I don't know. But it wasn't like today. It wasn't like you watch TV and watch people get beheaded. I actually haven't seen that, but... Uh, uh, it, isn't, it wasn't like you are going 90 miles an hour every single day of your life, driving here, driving there, so much stress, so much stress. We have, as a culture, a nature deficiency disorder. We have lost our connection to nature. And Ayurveda says very clearly, you disconnect with nature, you lose connection to your ojas. Your ojas is the vitality, the immunity, the radiance, the connection to spirit. It's the connection to our intuition. And also there's pretty good deduction from you read the Ayurvedic text that they were talking about very specifically highly evolved uh, digestive uh, components, possibly microbial components, that come from a very refined digestive process, let's say. Okay, I probably lost you all there. But the point is, is that, that our microbes 
have a lot to do with our ability to digest uh, food in a very specific way. And Ayurveda says that that process is about a 30-day process to complete the digestive system, all of which requires microbes along the way. We now have science that those microbes have something to do with our brain chemistry, mood, energy, vitality, stability, and even our gut feelings and intuitive decision-making. So how cool is that? So, and all that, oh, just clearly in Ayurveda, is all about a sattvic, giving, loving, kind environment. So my point is, that we are 90% microbe, all of which love a life-giving, supporting environment. They don't, we don't thrive in a stressful environment. We don't have a history in autogenetics that connects us to stress. There were some, of course, but the basic theme of life for the last 70,000 years as we left Africa was really connecting to nature, connecting to nature, and only very recently as we, we locked ourselves in rooms with lights on it and disconnected it. 50 years or something since we've been out of the agriculture, most people have been non-agricultural. It's brand new, really, from a genetic perspective. So we need to wake up and think that that's something that we can learn from. And Ayurveda really gives us a beautiful roadmap of how to reconnect. So my, my, again, my point is that how can we begin to you know, live in sync with these natural cycles, but also the Ayurvedic psychology piece, that we are by nature a giving, loving, kind species because we came from microbes that evolved only in that cultural environment. I don't know if that gets you excited, but it gets me excited because it's like, wow, there's reasons for us not to kill each other. You know what I mean? I know that's probably a long, it's lofty thoughts, but, um, but, but this is really, I believe, you know, some of the science that we're bringing out here at LifeSpot and kind of connecting a lot of ancient dots with some modern science, and we can begin to lift some of that you know, now, and, you know, so much, and I've written so many articles and talk about you know, how to connect up with the cycles, eating, but also connecting with your heart, becoming more loving, joyful, kind, meditating, becoming more still, becoming more silent. These are powerful, powerful, important tools uh, that, that, you know, studies are now showing that if you don't meditate and you don't exercise, that that's just as bad as smoking. So you might as well smoke if you're not going to exercise. I mean, by not doing those things, you actually might as well be smoking. We all know that's really bad for us. Okay, so that's uh, hopefully a little motivation for why we should eat with the seasons and, and from a microbiological point of view. But let's talk about it from just a super logical point of view. We're in the winter. It's cold and dry. Most folks, except for us in Colorado right now, um, uh, it's cold and very dry, and nature is harvesting nuts and soups and stews and warmer, heavier, hard to digest foods. I've talked about how the digestive system gets stronger in the winter to help keep us warm, but also digest these harder, more dense foods. And, and if you look at the winter grocery list, you'll see that there is a whole host of foods that are harvested from around the world to give us benefit for those seasons. Now, I have to say also, though, you have to realize that that um, the grocery list that you're going to look at are grocery lists that list foods from around the world, not just locally, okay? And they're also foods that are grown from, from the original harvest. When I wrote the book, The Free Season Diet, I went and did the research to find out when these foods were originally harvested, tomatoes being very small, apples being very small, corn being harvested in the spring, not in the fall, it's not on the winter grocery list. Corn is a very dry grain. 
Wheat is a very wet grain, harvested in the in the fall in the in the mountains of Turkey. Wheat, corn was a very dry grain, harvested in uh, Central America in the spring before the wet, rainy monsoon season. So, so um, although we have corn grown here, people say, "Oh, this is crazy! Corn is grown in the fall and harvested in the fall here." Well, that's because we hybridized it, and there are so many foods that grow in season because we wanted them to. Be, and hybridize them to to grow in this area in this region that didn't really connect up with their original purpose on the planet. So I want I, I make that point because when you look at the grocery list, you might see things that don't make any sense. Well, if you read the back of in the back of the three seasons that book, there's a glossary there that kind of talks about some of these sort of outliers that don't make sense with what we know to be the time of the year that these foods are grown. So before you pass judgment. Go back and find the research for when these foods were originally harvested and where they were originally harvested on the planet, and you might be surprised to see that we have a diet here that, is, that we think is eating seasonal and has nothing to do with how nature originally planned it, which is sort of interesting. And I love the fact that when I went and I did the research, I was like, wow, because a lot of the Ayurvedic, 85 to 90% of the foods in the Ayurvedic list were seasonal, but there was a 15, 10-15% of them that didn't actually jive with the seasons. So that's when I went back and said, oh my goodness, look at that. It's because these were grown like, you know, in China in the fall and here we or whatever. It was like it all started to make some really interesting sense. So please, before you, if you see some foods that don't make sense, try to, uh, you know, we can dig in together and, and find and, and see uh, exactly the natural logic and intelligence of what makes those foods count. So the spring... Uh, or the winter, it's time to really rebuild. And I wrote an, an article called, Are You Protein Deficient? And um, it's very important for us to, to make sure in the winter that we're not protein deficient. I wrote an article recently about salt. Uh, the taste in the winter to balance winter, to balance vata or sweet, sour, and salt. Heavy, oily foods, warm foods are the ones that we want to eat more of in the winter time. And, and they are naturally occurring and they are really good for balancing what we call vata, vata air, means the nervous system. And in the winter when it's cold and dry, vata goes up, we get nervous, we get stressed out, we don't sleep as well, we get dry. Nature gives the antidote in the warm, heavy soups and stews and nuts and seeds and higher protein, higher fat foods. It's very important that all of us make a shift to getting more protein in our diet. Um, Lots of folks are vegetarian uh, for really good reasons. I, I am a big believer in a vegetarian diet, but even as a vegetarian, you've got to make a very strong emphasis to get those proteins met. And sometimes folks, you know, fall off that wagon as vegetarians, don't do as well because we get so busy, we don't cook enough, we don't have enough time to cook beans that take two hours and all that, and we become a little bit... Um, uh, unstable in our blood sugar. We start craving more sugars and breads and carbs. So a lot of vegetarians tend to crave, I was and did for a long time, crave carbs, lots of carbs, lots of carbs, and realized that um, I was disturbing my blood sugar because I wasn't getting enough protein. And proteins, when you don't have enough in the winter, you'll begin to crave. You'll begin to want breads and sugars, and, and you'll have candy hidden in places in your house. You'll crave more bread, pastas, things like that. Protein sits in the synovial fluid of your joints as a, as a repair reserve for the muscles when they work out or run after a bear or something and they need to replenish the muscles. 
if you run out of protein to stabilize your blood sugar and your mood, your joints will begin to dry out and become stiff in the winter, and that's why lots of folks become creaky and stiff in the winter, so protein becomes really, really important. Now, easy ways to do that, more nuts and seeds and soups and stews, and if you're a meat eater, eat more meat. Um, uh, in the Ayurvedic uh, article that I wrote called Are You Protein Deficient, there were two therapies for that that I suggested. One was eating red meat, believe it or not, um, four ounces a day for two weeks. Or have a protein shake of your choice with every meal. Not a huge thing, but just a, a little extra protein with every meal in the winter to make sure you build up those reserves. But the red meat was used Ayurvedically as a medicinal tool for protein deficiency because the red meat was the most acidic. And then salmon and fish and chicken and poultry and then nuts and seeds and, and beans were how it went in terms of becoming more alkaline-based proteins and meat being the most acid-based protein. So for lots of folks who are really, you know, blood sugar unstable, they have had phenomenal benefit by doing this Ayurvedic thing, which is just two weeks, not the rest of your life, eating red meat for just a couple of weeks to replenish those protein reserves. And uh, so that's something to consider and how important it is, my point here, to get the meat in the winter because come spring, then we're going to shift gears to there's no, your, the, grain, the, the sprouts and the berries and the cherries and the root, the, the root vegetables and, and the more abundant harvest of spring and summer are going to happen. And the, the desire, the need to eat meat when you have a reserve of protein and fat for winter um, and you don't really want to be killing your animals when you can, you know, you can't eat the food out of your garden fast enough. It doesn't make any sense, you know, from a, uh, from a, 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 an evolutionary point of view where, where hunter-gatherers spent most of their days just trying to feed themselves, let alone having the choice of what they ate. And the last thing they're going to do is kill animals when they can't, when they don't have to because, you know, they would want to preserve, reserve them when they have a little extra. Um, and how and how important that is. You know, humans have been shown in studies to show that humans actually thrive. They live longer. Their cells live longer. Their cells make more energy when they don't eat. Average American eats about 200% more food than they need. We have the 100% of food we actually need, right? And then all of our problems come from the extra 100%. Really, you can pretty much, you know, blame almost all of our health problems and concerns on the extra 100%. And, and when you take that 100% away, matter of fact, studies when we just take 20% of that away, just eating, just eating way more than you need, just take the 20% away, and you have this incredible uh, health benefits. People lose weight, their blood pressure drops, their cardiovascular benefits are improved, the risk factors go down, cholesterol levels bounce. The, the, the numbers, the, our, the studies are overwhelmingly the most positive and compelling evidence for health is to just not eat as much. I mean, that's... That's been well documented in many, many, many studies. So here we have it. Spring is the austere time of the year to not eat that much food. And you got it. You're not going to do it very well if you didn't pig out in the in the, in the winter. So we got about a month and a half left. So go for it. Enjoy. Eat those proteins and fats and soups and stews and really get your protein reserves met. And then watch yourself naturally shift in the spring where you're not thinking about maybe as much protein and you're thinking about spinach salads and root vegetables. Now the deer in the spring, uh, they would dig up the, 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 the surface roots 
and uh, the, the dandelions and the burdock root and the organ grape and the golden seal and the turmeric and gingers, all these are, are very powerful bitter roots. And what these roots do is, well, first of all, they're, they're the first things when the ground softens, the deer can dig them and get them. Humans were all about digging up stuff. Probably were better to call hunter-diggers than hunter-gatherers. And we would dig up stuff and, and, and put it in soups and stews and make tea out of it or whatever. And that was something that was extremely common even back 50 years, 100 years ago. Every self-respecting human, let alone American, made dandelion root tea and things like that. And those roots scrubbed the villi of the intestinal tract supported the liver to be able to detoxify in the springtime, which is a natural occurring thing that begins to happen. So these are the natural things that are supposed to happen in the spring. And then after you clean all the villi with the bitter roots and get the liver to begin to detoxify, which is naturally happening in the spring, the sprouts come out of the ground. Sprouts have, in one study uh, uh, that I read a long time ago, 400 times the nutritional value. Just wrote about an article about some red cabbage. It was an article about a study done by the USDA that the red cabbage had, had 69 times more vitamin K than... Um, than the mature leaves of the red cabbage did when they were sprouted leaves. I think it was um, it's going to be six or nine times more vitamin C. I forget the details of that. But, you know, clearly we know the nutritional value in these early spring greens are loaded with nutrients and chlorophyll, which fertilize the good bacteria to allow that microbiome, which is coming out of the soil fresh, all these brand new sparkling bugs that we're going to ingest to reset and start a microbiome. Remember, spring is nature's new year, so this is the time this is supposed to happen. It's really important. And then, and then that cleans out the intestinal tract and a lot of berries uh, who originally were harvested, not just at the end of the summer, but they were harvested in the spring. And those berries have uh, parathocytins and antioxidant nutrients that scrub not only the villi, but they also increase lymphatic drainage. And inside your intestinal tract, you have the beginning of your lymphatic system called lacteals, and those lacteals scrub your lymph and make your lymph move, and your lymph is, is concentrated on the outside of your gut wall. It's called your gut-associated lymphatic tissue. And um, if we don't kind of clean the villi with the bitter roots and fertilize with the greens and, and then get the lymph to move with the berries and cherries, which are also beginning summer foods, then we don't get that, that one, two, three punch to reset the digestive microbiome before, uh, before nature's new year really kicks in. Summer is hot, and if you, and if you, if you don't clean all that, uh, winter heavy mucus out of the body in the spring, the summer's heat will bake that mucoid material onto your intestinal tract, make your intestinal tract very dried out, irritate, inflamed, disturb your microbiome, and lots of other yucky things begin to happen. And at the end of the summer, we get hot, and the hotter we get, the more dry we get. And so nature said, well, gosh, we have a plan for that, too. We're going to give you cooling fruits and vegetables at the end of the summer to cool things down so you don't get overheated, right? And so at, so at the end of the summer, nature gets uh, fruits and vegetables and pomegranates and apples and watermelons, all these things that are super cooling and blood purifying to get rid of the heat out of the body, but they're also purgatives. If you drink a lot, you eat a lot of apples or eat, drink a lot of apple juice, you're going to get loose bowel movements. Now in Ayurveda, we know that, that uh, one of the best ways to dissipate heat out of the body is to create a laxative effect. 
When your child gets a fever, they also get diarrhea. Diarrhea is the body's natural way to dissipate heat. It's a natural heat-reducing process. So nature said, well, here we're going to give you all these heat-reducing sort of laxative-incurring fruits to help you gain some winter weight and insulate you for the winter and flush your intestinal tract to get the heat out of the body so that heat, come winter, doesn't turn into dryness because we go from, stay with me now, hot and dry in the summer to cold and dry in the winter, and what accumulates is dryness. We become dry, and our sinuses get dry, our intestinals get dry, their tract gets dry, and then we become uh, extremely dry. And as a result of that, the mucous membranes get irritated, uh, the microbes don't like to be either too dry, they don't like to be too wet, they like to be just right. And it's important to make sure that they're just right. So Winter says, well, we're going to give you some soups and stews and heavier things again to insulate you uh, so you don't get overly dried out. But if you do get dried out in the winter, produce reactive mucus in your sinuses, reactive mucus in your gut, causes a disturbance in the microbiome, your immunity goes south, become more vulnerable to getting sick. Those kinds of things happen not just because you didn't eat enough soup or stew in the winter. That happens because you didn't get enough cooling fruits and vegetables to dissipate the heat at the end of the summer, or you didn't get enough cooling fruits and vegetables all summer long, or you didn't dissipate the excess mucus from last winter in the early spring. So the point being is that this is many of the problems that we experience are caused by dietary disconnects that happened one or two or three cycles or seasons prior. So it's not like we're just like, oh, I didn't need enough nuts in the spring or in the fall, you know. It was because I didn't dig up enough roots and make the dandelion root tea, and I didn't do those things that our ancestors did. And a lot of us are probably not willing to go dig up roots and make teas, and, and that's why we have herbs for that. You know, I don't dig up and make a lot of those teas myself, but I'll take turmeric or amalaki or take different herbs to help make sure I get those seasonal uh, mitigating uh, nutrients that we, I think, desperately need to get to get reconnected. Um, so that's sort of how the whole cycle works. It's this beautiful cycle until the extent, to the extent that you get dried out in the winter, is to the extent you're going to make extra mucus in the spring. And here we are in that transition right now, and you got to be thinking about that. So we have a couple of months left or so to really get that to happen. Making sure that you do your deep immune building reserve in this time of the year, one of which it means vitamin D. Very important to make sure you're getting optimized levels of vitamin D in the wintertime because there's no UVB radiation north of Atlanta, and, and you just can't get it unless you're eating animal innards, organ meats, and things like that. Uh, ashwagandha, one of my favorite adaptogenic herbs to build heat, strength, stamina, immunity in the body, very, very, and really great for the nervous system, very, very important. Um, one of the things that happens in, in the intestinal tract, um, you know, during this time of the year is, is uh, we naturally harvest slimier Grains. The, the winter is a time we have more oats and wheat and, and heavier, slimier, soluble fibers. And these soluble fibers are very, very important because winter is a time where we can first digest these heavier kinds of foods. The soluble fibers have a tendency to attach to the toxic bile. Think about your liver for a second. It's like a Pac-Man, right? 
Pac-Man, and inside your liver is all this bile, Pac-Manning, cholesterols, and toxic chemicals and things. Eat some fatty food, all that toxic bile goes into your intestinal tract, and then it attaches to fiber, particularly soluble fiber like oats and, and slimy grains and things like that. Like we have a tea called Slippery Elm tea prebiotic formula, which is slippery on the licorice and marshmallow, a phenomenal uh, formula for, for giving you the soluble fibers, which are both prebiotics for the good microbes, which we're going to get ready to really boot up here come spring. And um, it also attaches to the bile and takes the bile to the toilet and escorts all that yuck out of your body. Now, a, a, a fact is that uh, and this comes from uh, one of the uh, medical physiology textbooks, is if you don't have enough good fiber in your diet, up to 94% of the bile, with all the toxins in tow, get reabsorbed back to your liver, and then your liver is going like, whoa, when you create crazy, and the liver pushes all these toxins back into the bloodstream only to get recirculated, and then that bile, if you don't have enough fat in your diet from the winter foods, will actually get recirculated and reused up to 17 times um, you know, uh, before it gets discarded and we make some new bile. Now, that was a, a genetic way for us to, if we didn't get a lot of uh, uh, meat in our diet uh, on a regular basis, where it was feast or famine and hunting wasn't very, very good, then we had the ability to reuse bile for 17 days in a row before we finally discard it to help us, you know, scrub and make fats burn and help the body, you know, function properly uh, and deliver fats as a fuel supply without starving. One of our ability techniques, but when we did get a lot of fat, uh, uh, when the men finally got their act together and actually were able to hunt something, I think a lot of why humans are here today is because, not because hunters were great, fantastic hunters. They weren't. Um, it was the women who stayed home and hunted and gathered or dug and gathered that, you know, the men would come back with their chests puffed up with nothing to show for it. Uh, the women would be like, I got this covered, no problem. We, and then they got dinner ready and they take care of everything and they feed the tribe and everything. But every once in a while, men would come back and they would eat every little aspect of the animal, get all these great fats, that would replenish them, but we had structured in our DNA the ability to go for a long period of time without that. But my point is, if you don't have enough fiber in your diet, which are those root vegetables that the women dug up and, and grains that they kind of harvested for us, they attached to the bile and took the toxins to the toilet and kept us from getting too toxic. The average American gets about 20 grams of fiber per day. The average hunter-gatherer got about 100. They had five times more fiber than us. So these are things that are happening now. Soluble fibers are in season, so get them, like your oats and bran and barley and slippery elm, uh, like I love that tea, peas, okra, um, uh, Brussels sprouts, all of them loaded with you know, really, really good fiber uh, that could help you uh, this winter. And then we make a very gradual, beautiful transition come spring to the, to the insoluble fibers, which are the fruits, the root vegetables, um, which are more bitter and alkaloid, just clean scrub all that extra soluble fiber out of the intestinal tract uh, to, to help increase bulk and clean out the intestinal with the roots and the greens and the leafy greens and, and things like that. So a pretty amazing um, understanding, and I think and that's what we are you know, trying to put out for you guys every month is more depth 
uh, of understanding of why nature did what it did and, and what is the value for us just logically from one food to the next, seasonally, and even with regard to our microbiome. So um, hopefully um, that gives you some good insight. I, I think it's pretty exciting stuff. Uh, I've got a few questions that I want to answer. Uh, one here is, uh, my husband suffers from kidney stones and needs a low oxalate diet. Have you got any recommend, recommendations as to a lot of the winter menu contain oxalates? Well, actually, a lot of the um, winter menu contain oxalates. A lot of the spring spring greens, like spinach, is high in oxalate. Turmeric is high in oxalates. Um, and um, I think that... Um, you can read, you can, I think we have on our website a list of all the oxalate foods that I think you just have to go through the winter and spring grocery list and just find the foods that aren't high in oxalates. But I would look to something other than just reducing oxalates as the reason for kidney stones. The kidney stones are an issue that's coming from upstream, which has to do with liver and bioflow, which has to do with digestive issues which may have gone south or compromised a long time ago, and now these toxins are spilling from the liver into the, into the blood and the kidneys are having to take up that slack. So, so that's sort of important uh, as, as well as to, to, yes, avoid the oxalates, but also don't stop there. Keep looking and trying to dig in and, and scrub and fine-tune what underlying digestive issue, how is his ability to metabolize fats for many, many years, he ate a lot of greasy fried food, but he get nauseous, heartburn, things like that. Those are the questions that I would want to ask to really kind of figure to really figure this out. Okay. Uh, one more question um, is, um, what about? Oops, I lost it. It's in here somewhere. Uh, it was about um, jasmine rice and, and quinoa. Um, you know, rice is great. You know, long grain rice is better than short grain rice because uh, the, the glycemic index is lower. You, white rice isn't, you know, this terrible, terrible thing. White rice has no husk on it, so it's easier to digest. That's why we make it with our kitchery, which is so important as a medicinal food. Literally, in ancient times, people would stay there and hand dehusk the rice and hand split the mung beans and the husk would fall off and then cook it together with certain spices to make a medicine. They didn't do that because it was fun. They did it because they were making a medicine. Now, in the husk are a lot of the nutrients, I agree, but a lot of the toxins. You hear about arsenic and rice, 80% of that, somewhere in that number, I'm pretty sure it's that number, is in the husk. So, and it's harder to digest. So, while they may be more nutrient-dense, when you're trying to feed the body and you create it with a balanced protein like with the beans, you know, we find that the blood sugar uh, levels, when people go on our kitchery, Colorado cleanse diets, their blood sugars crash. I mean, people do, they're not crash in a bad way, but they just come way down when they're in, you know, numbers, when their numbers were a lot, were too high. So, um, and this is, we are still in the grain season, the wheat, you know, uh, the quinoa, uh, gluten being a harder to digest grain, so many of us might really need the ability, need to, to reset digestive strength, take some time off from gluten, and reintroduce it in a logical, seasonal way, as opposed to thinking that we should be eating it daily, or once or twice or three times a day. It's just probably not sustainable for any of us to really do that. Um, my husband suffers, oh, that's the same question, sorry. Uh, we live in Canada, follow the three-season diet, please advise how to eat when in Barbados, um, um, or similar country, in January, February, and March. Well, I don't feel sorry for you. 
Um, is, is there winter season hot like summer? Well, you know, it's, it's when you tra- here's what happens when you go from Canada to Barbados is you go through a seasonal change. Then when you go from Barbados back to back to Canada, you go through another seasonal change, and your body will force a natural reset of microbes and a natural detoxification. So lots of folks get sick in those transitions. So not a bad idea to do a little four-day short home cleanse that we do. So that's our free ebook, and and do a little detox or boost your immunity with things like ashwagandha and vitamin D during that transition. Turmeric as well, because that's the time that you're more vulnerable. And um, when you get down there, then you can do that little mini cleanse and then shift into the seasonal diet in that area, which would be summer for sure. Um, um, what advice do you give people um, uh, who have had to take antibiotics in order to reestablish microbes? You know what? The whole thing about antibiotics, I mean, I, yes, we know that it's bad, but I always try to look at the bright side. When you take antibiotics, you're killing everything. You get like a free start. Like you just like just like get to start over because you just killed all the bad guys, which oftentimes have been digging in for a long time and they don't want to go. So you get rid of those guys, which is good, and you get rid of the non the 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 the, uh, the non uh, functional real estate occupying microbes that are doing basically nothing, and you get rid of some bad guys. So this is a great time to repopulate. That's why I like to use our gut revival, which has the Saccharomyces Saccharomyces boulardii to knock off the bad guys and the bifidobacteria HN019, which is one of the only strains that I've actually seen studies on that show that it supports the proliferation of new permanent residents in your gut. So you put those two guys together, and now you're getting rid of some of the bad that might be trying to get in there, and you repopulate along the way. So I think it's a great opportunity. You can take you know different prebiotic things we have, like the slippery LMT, so many ways to, to make that a positive instead of a negative. So I would definitely look at it that way. Uh, in tropical countries where the, where the weather is summer for the entire year, how can change, you know what, how can you change your diet in these tropical countries? We are um, exposed in the winter here in Colorado, for example, to a 72 degree house, to a car that's 72 degrees, to a house of 72 degrees, so we like to live in 72 degrees. Uh, in Florida, you go, and in a lot of times in Southern California, there isn't air conditioning in a lot of houses. Uh, maybe Florida is different. There isn't heat in a lot of houses. So the winter might be 50s, and people are really wonder walking around with down coats on. And the summer it can be 70 or 80 or 90. So the differences are, you know, still quite dramatic. These tropical regions, southern regions, still have seasonal cycles. Albeit we may have hybridized things not to really reflect that, but if you talk to the local people, there are definitely foods that grow in different seasons in those areas. And if you can tap into that if you're living in those places, that's even better. Uh, I buy organic grass-fed meats uh, from the freezer case from local farm. Uh, How does freezing affect the microbes? Um, uh, That's a really good question. Um, uh, um, I don't know. But I don't think, I know a little bit about this, but not enough, enough probably to be dangerous. I know that, that they, they do, when you do freeze your microbes, it does preserve them and they do come back to life. I don't know for how long that lasts though, but that's a really, but I do know like when you send in your microbes, uh, like for a microbiome test, they, you freeze them and you send them in for a sample and that, that's how you get them sent. You freeze them and then they last a little bit longer. Uh, so I do know that that is a way. I, that's a great question. I, I, I think I need to dig into that more. Um, but thanks for that. Um, 
Do you think eating for the seasons can change uh, due to global warming? You know, global warming is obviously happening. It's, it's for sure climate change, but we're having global warming here. 70 degrees, it's freezing in New York and on the East Coast. So who knows really what's happening at this point in time just because we have climate change. And that might be, become really cold in certain places for a while and really dry and warm in certain places for a while. We don't really know. But I don't think that enough has changed in the environment yet to make a powerful effect on the seasons. Things Seasons are coming in earlier, coming in late, but it hasn't really changed the foods that we eat or harvested at this point in time. It may, and very, very possibly will, how long it's going to take for for the... the uh, global warming, you know, the climate change to really have a, a major impact on, uh, on the foods that we eat and things and how things are grown and, and, uh, and weather patterns and tides and all that, fish migration patterns, you know, it's going to change and happen and it's done it many, many times on this earth. Um, what that looks like, no one knows. How soon it's going to come, we know it's coming sooner than we, we ever expected. But I don't think it's made a dent yet in any kind of, you know, anything that we need to really be aware of. And I don't think anybody really knows for sure what that's going to look like. Uh, is eating seasonally uh, different for men than women? Um, you know, when they did a study with uh, Hadza people, uh, hunter-gatherers in, uh, in Africa, they found that the women did have a different microbiome than the men did. The men had a microbiome that was more suited for uh, eating meat and digesting protein and meat, and the women had more microbes that were better at digesting root vegetables and grains and, 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 and other types of vegetables. So either the men would go out and hunt and gather and kill their animals and then eat all the meat and then come back and go, ah, oh, sorry, we didn't catch anything, and then also eat their vegetables and not give the women the meat. That's one way of looking at it. Um, another possibility for that explanation might be that when they did kill an animal, they may have had to eat the organ meats and the thing and actually skin the animal right there and then bring the other part of the meat back where they had sort of double duty eating a lot of the organ meats in the animal because it would go bad if they didn't, you know, uh, you know, skin and do all that stuff before they brought it back. But it was interesting, men did have different, but I think a lot of it has to do with the food that you're eating, and also studies show that, that if you live with someone that within time you're, you create a family microbiome. And so, um, and because you touch the same stuff, you, you believe it or not, you, when you live in the same house with someone, you really become, you exchange those microbes in, in a major way. And, um, so that's uh, pretty interesting. Um, yeah, very, very interesting. Uh, when is a good time to eat and not to eat when working the midnight shift? When you eat, when you work the midnight shift, I always feel like the best time to eat is, you know, um, uh, well, let's say this. You go home, we wake up, you go to home, maybe in the early morning hours, you go to bed, you wake up, and then sometime in the middle of the day, when the sun is shining, try to make that your biggest meal of the day. And before work, you might have to have a meal and you might have to work through the night. But the key piece of that is to make sure that you are uh, getting your big, big, big meal in the middle of the day because you still have better digestive strength then. And then herbs that are adaptogenic like ashwagandha are uh, very, very valuable from that perspective as well. Um, if anybody has a question on the phone, please push star 2. And I see one hand is up. I'm going to go to the phones here and unmute someone from uh, San Francisco, California. Are you there? 
Yes. Probably. Yes. Right? My yes, you have a question. Hi. So my question is, is um, when you're talking about the microbes in the vegetables and things, does it make a difference when you're washing your vegetables? I mean, you, does that make a difference? Do they wash off? Well, you know, when a lot of the researchers did the microbiome studies, and they're very conservative about the kinds of recommendations they would make, like they would never say take probiotics, although there's a lot of really good science to support, lots of really good science to support that. They're really, really, scientists are really touchy about that. But the one thing that they did say is I wouldn't wash my vegetables as much. I would, I would let my, wouldn't let, I would let my uh, kids play in the dirt more and not be so, you know, germaphobic. So I think if you have organic vegetables, a good rinse is a good idea, but you don't need to scrub them clean um, because there's a lot of value in, a lot, in, in, in the, the skin, which is where a lot of these microbes live. And if you scrub, scrub, scrub them or peel all the skin back, you know, then some of the best parts are, are right there. So, uh, you know, that's a great way to, uh, to, uh, to don't power wash them. Does that make sense? Good, good, good. Any other questions um, before we get ready to wrap up here? Um, uh, anybody has a question, please, um, please let me just mute you, mute you. Sorry. Anybody has a question, then just please push uh, star two. Here's another question from uh, Housatonic, Massachusetts. Are you there? Hi, John. Yes. Can you hear me? Yes. Very well. Thank you. Great. Yep. Hi. This is Rosalind. And... My question for you is for over two months I've had, um, I, don't, I don't know how much of it was emotional, but I, I had some kind of infection that went up um, into my head and my ears have been plugged. And for over two months um, I'm finding I can't stand the heat and I've tried the oil in my nose, and I tried the mucus, and then I just got to a point that, like, I had no impetus to do anything. Um, and even my, my like, desire to, to be drawn to certain foods sort of waned. So I know there's an emotional component, but I'm, my question is, in terms of blocked ears, do you have any suggestions? You know, here's something that... I have found clinically that I think may help lots of folks. You know, there's two things you can do for your sinuses. One is a neti pot, right, where you, you irrigate your sinuses with salt water. The other one is nausea, where you actually sniff oil into your sinuses. Um, and I find that when you are congested, the neti pot can be useful. If it is useful, it can be good. But I find that lots of folks, when they put oil into their sinuses, when you're congested or have a cold, it doesn't work very well at all. Sometimes it can almost make more congestion. I look at the nausea almost as a prophylactic technique in the winter to keep you from getting a cold. But once you get a cold, I don't recommend it. Now, using a garlic-based ear oil in the ears for a cold, and then massage the, the cervical lymph with that oil, make sure the oil's warm. That is a very great thing to do. You can even use the nausea oil, put it in the pot, take a garlic clove, you know, peel it back, chop it up, put it in the pan, heat it up. When the garlic starts to boil, the water will start to pop, and you press the garlic clove, and you get squeezed out all the garlic, strain it through a metal strainer, and now you have this 
this garlic-based oil that you can put in your ear, and it really helps to kind of increase circulation in the ear as well as uh, give you some of that benefits, those antiseptic benefits that that garlic delivers. And that's one thing to do. So the ear is fine when you're sick, but not the sinuses for that. It, what I would suggest that if you do have a real deep sinus congestion issue, um, is um, uh, a saline-based uh, spray into your sinuses, sort of like what the Neti does. And uh, some of them have grapefruit seed extract in them, which is a natural antiseptic. I've even seen medical doctors and have some really uh, interesting cases of chronic chronic uh, sinus infections for people that went to see a medical doctor and they put a little touch of tea tree oil in the nasal uh, saline spray and that can break up that congestion as well. But be careful with these things because some of these are uh, can be irritants to the sinuses. So it really depends on how irritated you, you already are. And, and uh, But uh, the, the nasal spray, it's an over-the-counter thing, a grapefruit seed nasal spray, saline spray, can be very, very useful to help, you know, help to uh, lubricate. And sometimes they use xylitol, and that's to create a little bit of a lubrication for the sinuses, and that can work really well as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, um, well, maybe this is more more of a quest. I mean, more of a consultation because I've tried those things that you've suggested. And you still have sinus congestion. Well, the sinus is waning, but. It, it, so the sinus I still have, but it's like in my head and my ears are still congested. Yeah. So, you know, for that, what I would always look at at the same time is, you know, what's the undercurrent? How is digestion? How is your elimination? Um, you know, there's some underlying reason why your sinuses are making this reactive mucus that are creating the congestion, and you'd want to look into that. Is the lymphatic system congested? So it would require a little bit more of a, a fine-tooth comb of looking at every aspect of your digestion. Maybe, you know, just, you know, your immune might run, must, might, system might be run down. That might need boosting. So there's a lot of factors there. Okay. Okay. All right. Thank you for those, though. Oh, you're very, very welcome. Um, okay, and one question from um, Las Vegas. Are you there? Hello? Yeah, I hear you. Hi. I am curious for um, detoxing chemicals like chlorine. I'm in chlorine all the time because of my chosen exercise, and is there something specific for those um, in iodine supplementation or... Well, in one study, it's a great question. In, in one study, and I wrote about this recently, um, there's a test you can do to see how much iodine you have, and it's a uh, iodine load test, and you take 50 milligram pill of iodine just one time, then you urinate for 24 hours. And what they did when they did this, and then that, then you basically send a sample that you're in, and they, and they determine how much uh, iodine you took in and how much iodine you urinated out. And that determines whether you need iodine or not. You're supposed to urinate out 90% of that. Um, but what they found when they did that, and they actually measured people's urine, they found out that the average person in this one study increased their urinary excretion of, chlor- of fluoride. And now we're talking about halogens here, chloride, fluoride, and bromide, all toxic halogens. Iodine is a halogen as well. 
that they increased the excretion of fluoride, which is very hard to get rid of, by the way, by 78%, bromide by 50%. They didn't, I didn't see anything with chloride, but it's, an, it's a halogen as well. So, you know, it's reasonable to assume that by taking more iodine in your diet, you're going to naturally chelate and flush out a lot of the other toxic chlorides. At least that was the case in one study that would be valuable. So what I would do is I would do the test See if you have low iodine. Why you did, just by doing the test, you did a major flush for most of the toxic halogens, which is kind of a perk, um, and then go from there. And that's a, uh, it's called an iodine load test. We have it on our, on our website. There's only like two labs in the country that actually do this test. And we just send you the kit and you do it at home. It's a home test. And is this something seasonally that I should do regularly because I'm swimming all year? Or is it, is it well, time to do it? Well, um, I think the thing is that, you know, one thing is if you're swimming is definitely use some of our Ayurvedic herbalized massage oils on your skin to keep your skin functional as an organ so you have a nice layer of oil on your skin on a regular basis because that's where the microbes are. If the chlorine continues to hit your skin and dries out your skin, it kills the environment for your microbes that live on your skin. So that's important. And then making sure your digestion and your detox channels are optimized because that's your liver is going to, once that chlorine gets into your blood, your liver should be able to process this and not have the chlorides find their way into toxic uptake into your thyroid and create problems like that. So that's where a good, you know, digestive reset and detox, and that's sort of exactly why, you know, we created the Colorado Cleanse for doing that kind of stuff. That's why I do the cleanse twice a year because I want to make sure that I shovel out all the accumulated yuck that I might have accumulated all, 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 all year long because it's just the reality of living in a toxic world, you know? Right. Thank you. Okay, you're very, very welcome. All right, everyone, thank you very much. Thanks for listening. Uh, please, if you haven't joined us and started signing up for the, the Three Season Diet Challenge, do it. Tell your friends, like I said, it's totally free. Let's create a little movement and get people, you know, to experience what it's like it, it, with no pressure to, you know, understand the value of connecting back to our, our roots. <laughs> and no pun intended. All right, y'all, thank you all very much for listening, and we'll see you next month when we talk about nature's new year we're going to dive deeply into some of the things we can do in the spring to really maximize our health with the spring which is right around the corner next month all right take care